Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to another episode of the Comrade Cast. And today I have a very strict time limit. I have only one hour to record. Um, so probably what we're going to do is we're going to do a smaller episode right now because there's a lot going on and I definitely did not want to miss uh, something this week. And then hopefully I can follow up with uh, something in more detail on Friday. But regardless, I want to get the ball rolling right now. So <laughs> I'm just going to jump right into it. I'm going to do something that I very rarely do, which is I'm going to take one take for the majority of this episode. This is just hopefully to limit editing and that kind of stuff. And with that, uh, this one take begins now, and we are going to jump right into it. We have an hour to try and discuss a large swath of what is going on. Um, if you guys have not been paying attention to the news in the last couple of days, um, the main thing I'm going to be talking about today is what is happening in Israel. I did want to talk a little bit about what was happening with the whole Republican speaker drama, but now given what has just happened over the last couple of days, that seems pretty small potatoes to the war, which is unraveling right in front of us. So about four days ago now on the Jewish Holy Day, which is their Saturday, right? The day which is effectively marked for rest and uh, contemplation. On this day, about four days ago now, Hamas decided to execute one of the, if not the largest scale offensive and attack that I'm pretty sure it's ever conducted in Israel. And this was something that I had no idea. No one saw coming. I didn't see coming. This was utterly shocking to me that this was happening. So I've got another map here. We can see just the extent to which these strikes happened, right? And they all happened in a coordinated fashion simultaneously all across southern Israel. So we're going to go over basically the very quick details, some very quick bullet points about what happened. I'm going to give you some context, some historical context around Israel and Palestine. And uh, that'll probably be the episode. And then we'll go into more detail about the present and future in the next episode. I'm, I'm just going to shut off the sound for most of these because it's really not that uh, <laughs> interesting or exciting. So what we have first off here, this is a bulldozer destroying the fenced-off border between Israel and Gaza. I'm sure as many of you guys know that the entire border between Israel and the Gaza Strip is fenced off and guarded by various fortifications, fences, and outposts. And we can see early in the morning we have Hamas fighters here bulldozing these fortifications and effectively this is going to allow them to move troops into Israel. We don't know exactly how many fighters took place in this initial attack. I've seen most reputable sources I see put it at around 5,000 soldiers, but I've seen uh, estimates as high as 10,000, though I think 5,000 is probably a little more accurate. So anyway, we have Hamas, of course, bulldozing these various fortifications so they can get in. We already saw this. This is our map. Various strikes. Of course, this is is actually today. So this is a little bit later. In results, in response to a lot of these attacks, we can see Israel has closed virtually all borders and all crossings into Gaza. We can see the various little markers here, the various checkpoints which are now closed. So there's going to be no movement in or out of the Gaza Strip. We'll talk about those implications in a bit. Regardless, though, here is another clip from the initial attack. We have, this was one of the most wild things that I saw, which is, he's on some kind of, 
He's like on some kind of paraglider here. Like this is unreal. He's got this weird gyrocopter thing that he's taking to move in. He's obviously using it to fly over various barricades and fly into Israel somewhere and uh, join the fight. But to me, this is like uh, very wild. Like when I was starting to see uh, videos like this of these guys like flying on these paragliders, this to me indicated a, a level of sophistication that we personally have not seen up until this point. Speaking of more levels of sophistication. So one of the things that Hamas was able to do was secure a large number of armored vehicles from the Israeli army. This initial attack apparently caught Israel completely by surprise. They had no indication that something like this was, happen was happening. And this surprise attack allowed them to capture a large assortment of armored vehicles and destroy various tanks. And, of course, we have another... Let me give you this video here. This is a video of a destroyed Israeli main battle tank here. And this is crazy, right? Because these tanks are some of the most sophisticated in the world. These tanks are nothing to sneeze at. So among capturing numerous armored vehicles, they were able to disrupt and take out various tanks. Apparently, they even managed to capture a few tanks, though I don't think that's going to be a huge uh, benefit to Hamas. It's more of a trophy thing for them. It's not like you, they really have the capacity to operate and supply and maintain an Israeli tank. That being said, it is utterly shocking that they were able to destroy and capture some to begin with. So from this initial attack, what Hamas has been able to do was they broke out of Gaza. They uh, unleashed these attacks simultaneously across various settlements and strong points within southern Israel. And then what they do, the most terrifying part about this whole operation, is that they captured dozens and dozens, maybe over 100 people, were abducted by Hamas and taken back into Gaza. Uh, and these people include people from everywhere between, um, you know, soldiers to civilians to uh, tourists from out of country, right, from all over the world. Apparently they have abducted Canadians, Americans, Germans, just to name a few. So obviously this is shocking to many people. Um, my biggest takeaway here again is how in the world was Israel caught flat-footed uh, from an attack like this? Because obviously an operation that is going to encompass so many different targets and have so many different people is going to be telegraphed in some way. And the Israeli special forces and the Israeli intelligence agencies are absolutely nothing to sneeze at. Easily top five in the world and how they could find themselves being caught flat-footed like this. It's quite astounding, to be honest. And right now we're right in the early days of everything that's going on. We have no idea what's going to happen in the future, but I wouldn't be shocked that once this kind of sort of initial surprise wears off, people start looking into what the hell went wrong here. There are gonna be some serious heads that are gonna roll uh, for missing this one because we've heard reports Egypt specifically warned Israel about a week or 10 days before this was going to happen, that something was going down effectively, and uh, the Israelis they didn't take it very seriously. So that one is my, my, my biggest like, shock and takeaway from this. And another thing that is really shocking to me is how Hamas has escalated their tactics here. One of the things which they did in one of the things they did to commence this attack was apparently they lost over 
5,000 rockets into Israel. Not only was the sheer volume of rocket fire staggering, apparently there were numerous rockets within what was fired that were more sophisticated than the Iron Dome was able to intercept. We don't know how many rockets got through, but part of the whole plan here was obvious, obviously to overwhelm the Iron Dome with sheer amounts and sheer volumes of fire. And then on top of that, what they have done is, again, it's, it's terrifying. It's utterly terrifying where they have taken international hostages and brought them back to Gaza. And what they have effectively said is to the Israeli government and the Israeli army was saying that, okay, you guys can bomb uh, Gaza if you want to. But in doing that, now you are running the risk of bombing and killing an American civilian or a German civilian or a Canadian civilian. And then you're going to start some sort of international incident, right? Do you think that these governments will just accept that you, the Israeli government, were responsible for their were responsible for their deaths type of thing? So they're obviously trying to use these hostages as a shield against being attacked from Israel's overwhelming aerial superiority. And I am shocked by just how, I guess, devilishly fiendish this tactic is, because at this point they are definitely putting Israel in a hard spot. I think that not only have they said this is something that's come up recently, they're going to start killing hostages unless they get their demands met, but also they put, again, Israel in this hard spot where they can't go as hard in their reprisals as I'm sure they would want to because they run the risk of starting an international incident by accidentally killing one of these hostages that Hamas has taken. Since this initial attack, what has happened, right, is Israel has decided they are going to respond. They've launched numerous airstrikes into Gaza. They've cut off all the roads. They've cut off the power. They've cut off the water supply. And effectively, they're calling up tens of thousands of reservists and, and troops and sending to the south of the country and effectively blockading and sieging the Gaza Strip. In response to these attacks, Netanyahu came out and declared war on Hamas. And what this really sets is the precedent for what Israel's outlook for this attack is going to be and how they're going to respond to it. Declaring it a war immediately and openly very obviously shows you where their mind is at, that they are not going to pull any punches. That obviously declaring it a war rather than an occupation or a police action or whatever other euphemism you might want to say. This allows Israel to effectively use its entire toolbox at its disposal. And one of the things, and we're going to get into this a little bit more, is that this really, I think, plays into Netanyahu's hands. If you're a person like me who is not a supporter of Benjamin Netanyahu, who thinks that he is a bad dude who has done a lot of bad for Israel, this is just about the biggest gift he could have been given, right? This blatant surprise attack that is uh, hor that has been conducted in such a horrific and coordinated way that has killed so many innocent people. Already we have the opposition parties coming out and saying we're going to form a unity government coming together behind Netanyahu. So basically you've given him the perfect opportunity to rally all of his political opponents behind him. And not only that, I'm sure we're going to see some sort of patriot equivalent coming out of Israel, patriot act that is equivalent where they're going to severely uh, crack down on various civil, civil liberties in the country in order to uh, combat terrorism. I certainly wouldn't be uh, surprised if this happens. 
And to be quite honest, there is no one to blame in this situation, really, other than Hamas. So before I delve into some of the historical context, I just want to get a couple things out of the way right here, right now, which is fuck Hamas, right? Fuck Hamas. Hamas is a terrorist organization. They should be given absolutely no mercy or no quarter or no sympathy. But the fact of the matter is that there's no way, in my opinion, that you can't classify what Hamas did here as not being a terrorist act. They literally captured innocent people and are threatening to kill them unless their demands are met. I can't think of anything more terroristic than that. But here's the thing, everybody. This, but here's the thing about this particular flashpoint, this particular conflict, right? That this particular conflict has been going on for such a long period of time. And there's been so much death spilled on both sides and so many people killed on both sides is that any side that wants to find things that they can point to their side as heroic and the other side as being Satan, they can find those things. Each side can craft their own narrative as their own side being heroic and the other side being evil very easily. It's very easy to do something like that when you have such a long historical track record of conflict and violence. So, well, obviously, I think that Hamas is a terrorist organization and that this attack is unequivocally an act of terrorism. There's no question that Israel has certainly set the bar for uh, something like this to happen and that their own internal policies have done absolutely nothing but exacerbate this situation and division between Israelis and Palestinians. And I personally favor a two-state solution. I believe at this point there is no hope for a one-state solution in Israel. I think that ideally that is probably what we would want to have happen. But given the political realities, there's absolutely no way that can happen. And I'll tell you exactly why. Because there's no way that Israel is ever going to come to the table when an organization like Hamas is anywhere near the levers of power in, uh, the, Palesti in the Palestinian political sphere. And there's no way that any Palestinian organization is going to come to the table with the Israelis when you have a hardline Zionist government like Benjamin Netanyahu who's been in power pretty much the entire 21st century. We have two sides, which both have very extreme positions on this issue. And the fact is that neither one of them can moderate without looking weak to the people who provide them their own political power. So we're in a position where moderation is impossible, but is it completely necessary for some sort of one state solution that both sides are going to have to come to much more moderate leadership decisions and the issue is that neither, neither of them can do that without being perceived as weak by their own political power bases. It's never going to happen. One state solution for the foreseeable future is pretty much off the table. Which obviously leaves us the uh, two-state solution, which I am very much in favor of. And one of the things that we, particularly on, on the left, need to be very careful here is that what is going to happen is that people on the right are going to try and say that just because you support Palestinian independence and you support a two-state solution, this means that you de facto support Hamas. This is something we need to be very wary of and push back against vociferously because it is very tempting to go into the litany of abuses that Israel has done against the Palestinian people when talking about this attack and what provoked it. And there are a great many and a great many egregious ones, but at that point, it's going to fall on death ears when you see 
Hamas coming over the border and taking innocent people and holding them hostage, right? You're at this point, if you're doing anything to even remotely defend their actions, you're just going to look like a fool. One of the things that has always really bothered me, particularly about the way left wing people talk about the Israeli Palestine conflict, is that they will completely forget. It seems like everybody forgets that Fatah exists and that they are the main political power broker within the West Bank, which is the other large Palestinian population concentration in Israel. And while Hamas and Fatah have the same goal, which is to liberate a Palestinian state, they have very different ways in which they intend to go about doing that. And one of the things that, again, of course, bothers me is that people forget that Fatah is an openly socialist party. They are an openly socialist organization, which has disavowed violence at uh, every possible turn. So it's not like Hamas is the only option for Palestinians within either the West Bank or the Gaza Strip, right? They have other options. They have options which are much more peacefully motivated, which you have parties which accept Israel's right to exist, which accept the fact that there's going to be a substantial Israeli state next to them, that Israel's not going away, nor should it go away. This is a party which accepts all of those things. And despite the fact that they have accepted all of these and walked the path of peace, and I should be clear, I know Fatah is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they are leagues and leagues ahead of Hamas. Regardless, though, the frustration for a lot of people who support Fatah and support a peaceful, support the peaceful path is that they get almost no recognition a lot of the time, right? I was having a conversation with a conservative friend of mine the day after that this happened, and I was explaining to him that this party existed and he had no idea. No one had ever taught him that there was two distinct political organizations within Palestine. One has a much more violent disposition and the other seeks a more peaceful path. The fact of the matter is that you can easily support a Palestinian state and Palestinian liberation without supporting Hamas. We all accept the fact that you can easily support Irish unification without supporting the IRA, for example. With that, I want to get into a little bit of the historical context and what has led us up to this point. I guess we'll just have a little have our map here. We'll color in our nice map. I want to take us back to before World War One. I. I want to go to the pre-World War One era and ask ourselves this area, what is now modern day Israel, and of course its neighboring and surrounding territories, who used to be the, the head honchos of this area way back in the day. Well, if you guys know your history, it was the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire, now modern-day Turkey, of course, ruled over this area for centuries upon centuries. Good 500 years. They were the guys in charge, and they kept the peace, <laughs> by and large. In that area, it was a lot easier when you had a much more centralized Islamic authority and Islamic thought in comparison to today, where Islamic thought is a lot more decentralized. In any case, regardless, though, this area was ruled over by the Ottomans for half a millennium. And then everything changed in World War I, and, and literally everything changed. I still believe that we're living in a post-World War I world. Everything changed after World War I, and 
the world and World War One led to the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire and led this area to be largely carved up between Britain and France. So you would have basically this is not going to be perfect, right? I'm just spitballing on a map here. <laughs> like there's some people like if you don't draw your borders or whatever perfectly, like they'll get angry. Anyway, so yeah, effectively after World War One, this area was split in half with France getting the northern half and the UK getting the southern half, of course, which contains modern day Israel and Jerusalem. So after World War One, you have this territory previously owned by the Ottoman Empire carved up between Britain and France, and each one of them takes a good chunk away and rules it until World War Two. Of course, we have World War Two, the sequel to World War One, as many people say, many people say this, it's been said before. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, World War II happens, and World War II was not a good time for anybody, but no people more, of course, than uh, the Jewish people who were the victims of one of the most systematic acts of hatred ever conceived in humanity's history. Of course, we're talking about the Holocaust, and as, it, as people began to discover the horrors of the Holocaust and just how pervasive and deep this hatred went in a lot of places in society, it became clear that the only way to prevent something like this from happening again would be to give the Jewish people their own state and their own home, their own place to live, and have that state guaranteed by a large number of powerful security guarantors like France, United States, United Kingdom, so on and so forth, so that the Jewish people could have their own place, have their own home, and it be protected from outside intervention. And this is a great and wonderful plan. As far as I'm concerned, no issues with this plan so far until, of course, you come up to what we're going to do about the people who already live in this region and who already have inhabited this region for generations upon generations. And of course, the Jewish people have an extremely ancient claim to this land, but that doesn't change the fact that people had been living there and spent their entire lives there. Many generations had grown up there people had spent their entire lives there. They didn't really have another place they could go. It's not like they could just get up and leave and go somewhere else because Palestine is and continues to be their home. And British government, obviously, knowing that this might be an issue, that there might be an issue here when we create the state of Israel and start to organize it and protect it and start bringing in Jewish people from all around the world to come and live here, there might be a problem with the fact that there's already a population, a large population of people who live there. Also, these two people have religious differences and religious conflicts. British government, knowing this and understanding this, decided in their infinite wisdom to effectively do absolutely nothing about it. And this is part of the reason that has left this festering sore in the Middle East for so long is because from the very get-go, the issue of the Palestinian population who lived in uh, Israel before Israel was created, there was absolutely nothing was done to resolve this issue at the start. Of course, this led to a war almost immediately between the Israelis and the Palestinians. It was a war that the Israelis handily won, which led to the creation, by and large, the creation of what we now know as modern-day Israel. But because this issue has not been resolved then or since, it continues 
to be a huge geopolitical source of frustration for everybody for nearly for a hundred years now. Like where this has been like, yeah, Israel established in 1945. So yeah, we're getting close. We're getting close. We're around the 80 year mark. So we're pushing to a hundred years that this conflict has been left unresolved and continually flaring up. And now we're just seeing the latest inflammation of this conflict, which has just been left stagnant for years and years. And before I go, because I don't really have too much more, and the last point I want to make before I wrap up this segment of the episode is, is I want to talk about why now. Why is this happening now? What is the reason that Hamas has pulled the trigger on this? And what is what were the factors that led to this specific date and this specific time? Well, in my opinion, one of the biggest factors that has led Hamas to do something like this is actually the warming of other uh, Arab states to Israel. Over the past 15 years or so, we have really seen a thawing of relations between Israel and many of its Arab neighbors. Just re in recent history, the past five years, we have seen Arabic nations finally begin to recognize Israel's right to exist and recognize Israel as a state. And this has obviously led to more people following suit and again, uh, a thawing of relations. And a lot of this is fueled by people's certain states in the region's fear of Iran, which they see as a bigger threat to their geopolitical interests than Israel. So in response, they have cozied up to Israel as a natural ally against Iran. And this is actually wonderful, not so much wonderful for Iran, but in terms of uh, stability in the region, it is a very wonderful thing, except for one issue that we leave continually, the issue of what we're going to do about Palestine unresolved. And if you guys have been around <laughs> right-leaning people for any period of time, one of the things that they love to bring up is the Abraham Accords. This is one of the accords uh, worked out by Donald Trump in Israel to help dethaw relations between them and their Arabic neighbors. And I will be real, it's a decent foreign policy achievement. It's a lowercase w, but they always act like it's a capital W win, if you will. And the reason why this isn't a capital W win in terms of a foreign policy achievement is because the Abraham Accords did not involve Palestine in any way, shape, or form. And not having them at the table to negotiate this obviously left a sour taste in their mouth. And this taste is continually growing sour as um, they see Arabic nations go towards a uh, normalization of relations with Israel. And so I think a big part of why Hamas is doing this is they are telling a lot of Arabic nations that, hey, we're still here this issue is still unresolved. You guys had our back for all this while, and now it seems like you're abandoning us. Well, you've got to pick a side here. And I think that is definitely a big motivation for Hamas right now is to try and force Arabic nations that may be more friendly to them to basically come outright and support Palestinian independence or support them with more forward means, more visible means. In many ways, I do see this as an act of desperation almost by Hamas, seeing that they are losing relevancy in the eyes of a lot of their former allies and neighbors, and now they are trying to regain it and restart this issue, mainly for their own political benefit. I really hate Hamas, right? I really hate these guys, because not only 
are they killing innocent people? But I think that what they're doing is really setting back the course of Palestinian liberation for maybe another generation. Because I don't know how a lot of people are going to look at what has been done right now and what is being done and say, you know what, you guys are the good guys. You guys had, you guys were the righteous ones that had it all figured out all along, right? Most people are not going to see it that way, nor should they see it that way, because the fact of the matter is that we need to have a non-violent, we need to have a peaceful solution to this problem, but we're marred by two political factions, which are pushing only for more and more escalation. It's a real shame, and this is what they're going to get. This escalation is going to come because, they, I, to me, there, there's no question that Israel is going to strike, and they're going to strike hard, and they're going to kill countless innocent Palestinian civilians while they do this. And yes, of course, the blood for those Palestinian civilians is partially on Israel's hands, but there's no way you could argue that it isn't also on Hamas's hands as well. So I do want to finish this episode. I got about 10 minutes here with a little bit more speculation as to what might happen or what has caused this. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the speculation, particularly that has emerged immediately out of this attack, which is that many people, in fact, the Wall Street Journal outright posted an article saying that there are serious links between this attack and Hezbollah, which is an organization allied to Iran and Islamic terrorist organization allied to Iran, which operates out of Lebanon. So many people are saying that Iran had a, including the Wall Street Journal, which came out and basically said that Iran had a huge part in organizing and planning and getting all the equipment necessary together for an attack of this magnitude. What was interesting, though, is that immediately after that article came out, you saw a lot of American security apparatus head honchos basically very publicly and very vociferously slap that down, say, no, there's been absolutely no indication of that. This is not what we're seeing. I personally, while I am not, I don't know either way, I would not be shocked in any way if Iran had helped Hamas plan this and organize this and execute this. The fact of the matter is that they had some pretty sophisticated training and organization going on. And I think that it makes sense that they probably had some outside help. But the biggest one I've seen, the biggest and, and probably the most interesting, and I want to be really clear, guys, let's be really clear with what I'm about to say. This is 100% speculation. I am not saying that this is happening in any way, shape or form. So please bear that in mind. But one of the reports that I'm seeing coming out of this whole incident is that Russia had a huge hand in organizing and planning and executing this attack along with Iran. And that I'm not quite as convinced about. What is for sure is that Moscow definitely met with Hamas leaders and they have been in contact with them, whether or not they actually went as far as actually organizing, planning and executing an attack like this. I'm not so sure. I personally don't think so. I think it behooves Russia at all to stick their nose in this particular hornet's nest. Iran, on the other hand, I can definitely see they have much more of geopolitical interest and a much more of a strategic interest to want to do something like this in comparison to Russia. So we'll see. This to me is right now one of the most interesting things that is emerging out of this attack is the larger geopolitical uh, considerations. Is this something that was just mean? It was is something that was just self-contained within Israel, or 
if other actors outside of Israel were helping Hamas, then all of a sudden this opens the door to this becoming quite a large geopolitical issue and something that which could quite rapidly spiral out of control. Though, thankfully, I don't think we're anywhere near that yet, but it's definitely something I'm going to be keeping an eye on. So with that, I think we can pretty much end this little mini episode for now. I got through most of the points that I wanted to, going sonic fast, sonic speed, and then trying not to take multiple takes. Because I'm the kind of guy that likes to, I, I will maybe phrase something in two or three different ways. And then when I'm editing, I'll choose the one that I think sounds the best. But obviously that extends the time. <laughs> Don't have that kind of luxury right now. So um, I'm going to end this particular little part for now. And I want to thank you guys for watching. And I hope you'll join us on Friday when I want to look more and do a deeper dive into uh, more what has been happening since the actual attack began and what is happening since then, as well as I want to do more of a look towards the future and what uh, potential future ramifications that this attack will have. So with that, I want to thank you guys for watching. This has been DeComrade signing off for now. And until next time, you guys take care.